Hello and welcome to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. It's me, Arthur, or Art Projects, one of your co-hosts. And also me, Eamon, or Voidlight, your other co-host. Welcome back, Eamon. It's, as always, a thrill to have you at the table. Ah, it's a thrill to be at the table. This week we're in a, an Arabian caravan under a two-sunned desert. Yes. It is very cool here as the sands are not nearly as good at retaining heat as the far more humid and temperate wetlands. But all the same, the chill is uh, its invigorating after a long day in the hot sun. Yeah, we try not to use the same tavern twice. That's for sure. After all, if there's one thing that gets boring fast, it's using taverns over and over again in your games. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> we go from here. We go from here to sleep, not to adventures. Yes. Yes, taverns are for after the adventure. That's why there's a carouse move. We should talk about the carouse move sometime. I've never used it. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I've used it either. Just because, I, I guess I have custom procedures for that. I suppose, but yeah. In any case, how have your recent games been going? Mine they have been I've fun, been pretty good. Yeah. So I, I, I've been playing Dungeon World with a new group lately. We've had our second session earlier today. It was a great time. I'm sure we'll talk about that group over and over again as time goes on. But, Eamon, I want to hear today, I, I heard, understand you have a highlight. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some highlights. Um, I'm going through the uncomfortable situation of having to change how I wanted my current gaming uh, group and session to be because I'm going to be moving cities pretty soon. So the group will either the game will either be shorter than we planned or different than we planned like with like parts of it over video chat and that sort of thing but the current sessions that we've had have included the session zero which um in the system that we're playing which is um invisible sun that i've been playing a lot recently there's this procedure where you do session zero where you use this um I guess it's sort of a GM-less procedure where you go around the table and uh, everyone collaboratively makes uh, NPCs and locations and rumors to inhabit the neighborhoods of each of the characters so that they can sort of be like plugged into their setting in a more intimate way. And some great content came out of that. It basically like fills up my GM prep with interesting characters that I can then turn around when we do the actual um, sort of action mode of the game and use those to create encounters out of. But some things came out of that. For example, one character in their neighborhood had a, a rat goblin rescue shelter down the street that was a negative influence on them. Um, another character had like a rival socialite that was uh, always trying to ride their coattails to fame. But there was one particular that um, was my highlight, which was this sort of mysterious entity that was in one of the characters' neighborhoods that was simply called Bad Dog. And no one knew exactly what it was, but it was just this, this huge menace that it was this hulking sort of dog-like creature that would just terrorize everyone and was most assuredly a bad dog. But one of the characters said that he wanted to have his character arc be to train a creature and that he wanted it to be that creature. And so we did a side scene to like do the initial step in that character arc in the way that Invisible Sun does where you can have one-on-one -on -one side scenes. And he discovered that in instead of being uh a simple animal as as uh he thought it was it was actually an insane elderbrin which are which are like shape changers so it was like basically this insane shapeshifter that was like acting like this animal and like terrorizing everyone and um when he contacted it mentally it accepted him to be its champion to like fix what was wrong with it so that was a cool little bit 
cool little yeah. highlight for me. I love it when things come together like that, where a player's arc just grabs onto something that someone else brings. Uh, and this is this is Invisible Sun, right? This is your Invisible Sun campaign. Yeah, there, there's an interesting mechanic where after uh, after the neighborhood for a given character is fully fleshed out, they have the option to pick which element that went into that neighborhood was their favorite element, and the player that suggested that element gets a wicked key, which is a um, like a an in-game resource that lets you like solve problems. Cool, 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 cool. Well, I think uh, it's time, Eamon. It's time to return to the Menagerie. The Menagerie? Oh, that's my neighborhood. Yes. Let's jump into our second Adventure Workshop Menagerie, and this week we're talking about the Darrow. Now, I'm going to be honest, the Darrow is something I'd never heard of before, flipping to it randomly in the book earlier tonight. And for those of you out there who might be in the same position of not being quite sure what a Darrow is, allow me to, to explain it. Darrow is tagged Horde, Devious, Intelligent, and Organized. Its weapon is a pickaxe, which does D6 damage. And it has the special qualities Telepathy. Hmm, Interesting. The Darrow is a twisted experiment. It's in the twisted experiment section of the book. And it is described as follows. It's typical to think that all the malignant arcane monsters made in this world are birthed by wizards, sorcerers, and their ilk. That the colleges and towers of Dungeon World are womb to every bleak experiment. There are mistakes made in the depths of the earth, too. These ones, the Darrow, are the mistakes of a long-forgotten dwarven alchemist. The Darrow don't forget, though. Twisted and hateful, the Darrow can be spotted by their swollen skulls, brain matter grown too large. They do not speak except in thoughts to one another and plot in the silent dark to extract sweetest revenge, that of the created on the creator. Instinct to replace dwarves. And their moves are fill a mind with foreign thoughts and take control of a beast's mind. There was definitely a day in um, the sort of fantasy zeitgeist where every single race had to have a dark version of itself that there were totally. dark elves and dark dwarves and um all of the above and um the dwergar i think in the forgotten realm setting for a long time were the sort of answer to dark dwarves and i think there were like, chaos dwarves or something like that in warhammer and darrow are basically dungeon world's version of that um and i i think darrow is not even a, a unique term to Dungeon World. I think that's a reference to something else somewhere. But Dungeon World has an interesting spin on it, where they sort of have a, an actual sort of a mad scientist or almost a mind flare, a lithid vibe, where they are sort of psionic. They, 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 this idea that they can um, take control of beasts is very cool. Um, and the fact that they can make mental assaults in the characters is interesting because uh, that's something that gets overlooked in um, high fantasy a lot. Like... Um, making characters make mental defenses sometimes a lot of characters uh will use or at least players at my tables that i've seen will use wisdom as their sort of dump stat because they want to rack up xp by discerning realities all the time um and if you kind of push that with this sort of um with the darrow and and have interesting sort of mental struggles going on as well as the characters mounts being used against them their animal companions being used against them uh that could be i think a really interesting encounter just uh centered around the darrow and what else might be down there in the laboratories 
Totally. I'm imagining a, a party that's very deep into the earth. And we've talked a little bit about playing games that are deep underground before and the, the sorts of things you have to do for food and the sorts of creatures that survive down there. And I love this this image of, you know, three PCs, a couple of donkeys, maybe some hirelings kind of going through the caves. And then they hear the rhythmic pounding of pickaxes in the far distance. But there shouldn't be any tunneling down here, not anymore. So what could it possibly be? And then you come across the ra a raving man who's who's sort of frothing at the mouth and scrambling at the walls and just trying to dig his way away. And, and no attempt that you make to, to rouse him from his stupor is enough. And that picking, that clank, 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 it grows ever louder, almost as though it's digging towards you. That's the, a, that's a thing. Yeah, that, that definitely you can set up some classic horror encounters um, with these sorts of things. The one, the other thing that I think is really interesting about monsters that are uh, sapient, um, where you have you know, intelligent, organized, and that sort of thing, is that if you want, and if the sort of tone of play that you're going for supports it, you can offer them as PC races, um, especially since doing so in Dungeon World is very easy. All you have to do is kind of come up with a single little move or uh, modification to just reflect like what that race is bringing to the table. Um, so for example, if I had an encounter with the Darrow with my party and a character died, as they're looting the room, I might say, like, you know, trust up in a closet, you find a Darrow uh, bound by his own people for being a traitor. And then they can, you know, that could be the new PC that they could join the party if the character or if the player agreed that they wanted to play as a Darrow. And I might give them like a tiny little psionic ability, like sense aggression nearby or something like mm -hmm. that. Or even calm an animal. Yeah, um, you know, something to reflect. You can you can sort of mine the monster moves uh, to make the the racial move uh, if you're wanting to do that. Pretty easy conversion. I think a lot of other um, a lot of the other sapient uh, monsters, especially from, um, well, I guess they're spread through all the sections here, but like could make for characters. Uh, if you're playing a sort of more light tone or funny game, you could even have a character play as a um, uh, an intelligent skeleton. Um, I've seen custom playbooks make that into a whole class, uh, like f focusing around how they like can lose body parts without dying and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think you could have, you know, an intelligent skeleton ranger or wizard or whatever you want, just as you could with a Dario. Yeah. And all you have to do is find a particular move. I think even Adam Coble in some of the actual plays that he's done uh, has this exact situation come up with a skeleton player character and all. It's <laughs> great. So... Looking at the Darrow for just a couple more seconds here, there are a few things that I want to call out. We have the um, we have the pickaxe. I like the um, I like the pickaxe as a weapon because you know you see that it's a tool, and then when the fight is over, that tool then falls into the player's hands. When you're deep under the earth, sometimes you don't have a pickaxe with you, and you do need one. Maybe finding one is as simple as seeking out a troop of of Darrow digging somewhere and taking them out. The other thing that I'm liking about this is the fact that they do not speak except to each other. I think there are a lot of monster races and uh, and sort of villain races that we see in this game where the expectation is that they'll monologue or they'll they'll war cry or they'll talk to the player characters in a way that makes them menacing. But I almost I think that that creatures that refuse to talk to you are maybe even more menacing. And I like that that's encoded directly into the description here. It's also a um, 
a, an opportunity to highlight the features of certain classes. I think, for example, if no one in the party could understand them except maybe the wizard, like if the wizard had any sort of telepathic ability themselves, mm-hmm. or if they had made a discern realities role and had, you know, through their magical power, been able to like eavesdrop on the Darrow, it'd be a cool example to show how the wizard is able to do something that the rest of the party isn't. But I guess they sort of do that all the time. Uh, additionally, with the druid, if the druid was sort of tapped into an animal's mind or had their uh, their their druidic mark on an animal where they can see through their eyes and that type of thing, and then that animal had its mind controlled, um, then that experience would be interesting to role play from the perspective of the druid. Like, what is the druid experiencing? As um, how how do the Darrow take over animals? So they sort of like heighten their primal fear, or are they supplanting their instincts entirely with a foreign set? Like that would be interesting to see. Maybe it might even be a disadvantage of the druid class. Like if you're in an animal form, you're more vulnerable to the Darrow. For sure. So that's the Darrow. That is today's Adventure Workshop Menagerie. So we can throw this guy back in the cage and move along to MetaTalk. So this week in MetaTalk, I think we wanted to look a little bit at a conversation that's been happening on the Discord lately and talk a little little bit about our own experiences with it. The conversation is about running GM-less games, games, uh, in particular games of Dungeon World or similar without someone taking the role of the narrator and world uh, world authority, I guess. Even authority isn't the right word there, but as the person that describes the things that the player characters interact with. Now, Eamon, I know I've played a few GM-less games, games that are built from the ground up to be GM-less, and I, as I understand it, you have as well. That's that's Is that correct? That is correct. Um, there are also games that sort of fall in the middle where they just deviate very strongly from the sort of um, standard RPG convention of players and GM. Uh, the, the, I don't even know if they could be considered GM-less or not just because they, they, they sort of just have their own set of roles. For example, um, in the... Um, the zine series that uh, the Gauntlet community has been putting out called Codex, they often include just little games in there. Um, and I've seen things that are just purely PvP. Like there was a game called Wind on the Path, which is a two-player game, uh, which is always about two dueling samurai. And each player just plays as one of the samurai, and then that's the whole game. Like everything is just taken care of um, in the dice and in the narration of the two players of this duel. So there's no GM, um, but there's also not like a like a round table procedure like a lot of other jamless games have uh, just because that game doesn't need it. I've also seen a game, um, uh, which I forget the the title of, but it was basically about a, a group of lawmakers having a debate um, about legislation for time travel rules in the future, like about like whether people should be able to like marry their you know former selves or their own ancestors and stuff. And like you, you role play the, the um the debate that's happening at like a town council meeting or something and one player plays as the moderator of the debate so they could sort of be seen as the gm but you see what i'm saying where it's a vastly different role than um than it would be in traditional fantasy rpgs and then there's this whole set of games which is about um shared fiction that tries to replicate similar experiences that our traditional games that we know of do but they just do that in a way where all the players sort of dice up the gm's role equally my example for that uh close to home with the PBTA, powered by the Apocalypse community, of which Dungeon World is a part, would be Noir World, um, which is a game, as you can imagine, uh, simulating the genre of noir fiction, um, where each player gets to be the director when it's their term, and it's kind of 
couched in the way as if the whole game is a movie. And when it's your turn, you get to choose which characters in the scene and like frame up a scene and get to do all the setting details. But your character specifically, as I understand it, isn't in the scene. So you you are basically the director that's calling the shots, so to speak, of the other characters. And then when the scene's over, you pass that around the table. And then once everyone's had a turn as the director, that's one act done. And I think most uh, games are like two or three acts. Um, so it's designed for like one shots. And if you're going to play another one, it's called like a sequel or something kind of carrying on that, that construction of the game being a movie. Yeah. One thing that I really like about uh, the concept of doing a noir game as a GMless experience is that it gives everyone agency in what the underlying conspiracy is. Because, yeah. you know, noir fiction isn't about the the success or failure of the of the detective or whatever it happens to be. Not really. It's it's about the struggles that they undertake as they attempt to unearth something dark. And most of the time, I feel like in noir fiction, the ending is ambiguous as to whether or not they were successful or really even did the right thing in getting involved in the first place. Um, so we also. I, w- I was going to yeah. say, we also have the rash of um, sort of setting building games that have risen up, especially um, that, that sort of pair well with our traditional uh, fantasy RPGs and sci-fi RPGs. Um, and I know you and I have both uh, had played interesting versions of these. Um, there's two that I know. Uh, one is called Downfall, where you sort of build a civilization or like a city, and you decide like what their ideals are and what their flaw is, and then you basically... Uh, through a GMless process, role play the downfall of that city. Um, so it's always about like watching it unravel. Um, and then there's another one called Microscope, where you basically make the um, the history of like a whole galaxy, basically, um, or just like a whole like world in, in the first place. And you start out at a very large scale, and then you keep zooming in closer. So you start out by making defining different. Um, like eras and then you define different like periods within that and then eventually get down to like single scenes so you might say like oh the age of dragons and in that there was the battle of black ridge and inside of that there was you know this specific hero like araya black wind or something and then um you you might like write like a a portion of her legend or something but either of those games and also some of the ones that i imagine you'll talk about are games that you could play before a role-playing campaign in a different system to sort of collaboratively build the world together, which solves an interesting problem, especially when you're doing, um, you're trying to do something interesting and non-standard that all the players are informed equally of what the setting is about instead of one player going and reading a book and trying to relate it to the other players. Like I'm, I'm experiencing that a lot for Invisible Sun because Invisible Sun has made the design choice to not have PDFs of any of the books. So there is just... There, there's some videos online that you can direct people to, but it's mostly like one person has all these books and I can't lend them to all the players at the same time. So I am very well informed of the setting because I've read all the books, but I'm trying to get the players slowly seeped into like, oh, like in this world, here's what the currency is. And oh, in this world, you know, here's what kind of people do because they're, they're, it's very non-standard. Whereas a lot of times to solve this problem, people just stick to the generic fantasy tropes because everyone already knows it and you can snap into that world quickly whereas if you do one of these games where everyone built the setting together you a have something really unique and b everyone kind of uh no one's a stranger in this land and you don't have to do anything like oh you're amnesiacs or anything like that to explain why the players don't know basic things like who's the king of the land and that's that that sort of stuff totally uh and we'll we'll talk about this more as we go but one thing i also like about the 
use a GMless game to set the stage uh, approach is that it means that individual players will become experts on individual facts about the world. So yeah, for that instance, they might have made yeah. exactly if if someone is very interested and uses a lot of their turns to describe the way that the hierarchical monarchy works in the system, then when a question comes out about w- which duke owns the 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 land that you're on currently, then that's the player who can answer because they've already shown an investment in the subject matter. And that so as I've mentioned before, it can be nice to know which player wants that work to be given to them. Um, one game that I love as a setting generator, especially for fantasy games, but it really works all over the place, is The Quiet Year. Um, and I think I've, I've actually heard a lot of like pushback on The Quiet Year as a game recently, and I can't remember precisely what it was and who it was, but my recollection is that in general people have been saying, oh, The Quiet Year, I don't like it one bit. Um, but I want to just say a couple of things that I do like about it a lot. I think it makes for a really good starting situation where it, descri- where it describes a community in terms of what is abundant in that community and what is lacking. To me, that's a really good framing device that helps to keep a narrative focused on particular, you know, on particular things and also lets us define what we want our setting to be about when we get out of the quiet year, if that's what we're doing. So, for instance, if I want to make my Apocalypse World game have a, have a quiet year-inspired opening, then I might say, well, what's scarce is gasoline and what's abundant? Hmm, I don't know. How about bullets? And then, bam, Apocalypse World game sort of falls naturally out of that because everything that changes over the course of creating this community is based on that initial premise. But then if I wanted to do a fantasy RPG, what I might do is say, uh, abundance, werewolves. And then, bam, suddenly we're, ta- we're talking about a werewolf town. And then when we get to that werewolf town in our campaign, we know exactly where it came from and what it struggled to deal with as players, which is a lot of fun. Um, basic premise of the quiet year, though, is that over the course of a 52-week game, you draw a card each week, and that card has a couple of options for things that happen in the town. Whoever draws the card picks and then describes how that changes the situation. Um, occasionally, you'll also do things like start a project that takes a certain amount of time and then agree how long it takes. And then after a certain number of weeks have passed, that project is done. And the whole game is played just by drawing a map out. So at the end of it, you end up with a really good map, too. It's a great game. Yeah, there's a lot of um, interesting actual plays you can listen to to see people go through these process processes, and sometimes they're a lot more digestible than um, actual plays of our traditional systems because it's assumed that you're going to be playing this entire game in a single session. Uh, usually, for a lot of these, um, for a lot of these um, jamless games, they're t- they're, they tend to be shorter format, um, which yeah. is interesting as well. Which lends themselves again to being tools that can be used with other games because you can simply make your first session a session of this and then everything else after that something else it's also um, as you were saying what you were saying it came to my mind that these games are a good way to interrogate the interests of your players and find out like what if you are going to be the GM in an ongoing game uh, to find out through one of these games like what sorts of things they're invested in what they like in a non-sterile way because you can always just simply ask the players or I suppose even have them fill out some sort of questionnaire or um, try to ask them just off the cuff like what do you guys want to do like before the game but in one of these sort of you play to find out that information like in play you discover oh this player is really interested in economies of power you know and like power struggles i guess i should incorporate that into our ongoing game that sort of stuff absolutely and it's also a pretty good icebreaker if you're playing with a new group or a group that you haven't played with in a while it can be a good way to get everybody on the same foot especially when there's an unequal knowledge base amongst the players 
it's also nice to not have a pre-drawn setting when you're playing something. And the Quiet Year gives you an opportunity to still have all the prep that you get from a pre-drawn setting without having to, you know, without having to rely on a book that someone else wrote and that you don't, haven't internalized yet, for instance. Um, but I want to jump over to sort of the other brand of GMless game that we talked about, which is sort of the more story-oriented game, which approximates the experience of playing something like Dungeon World, where you're playing characters over the course of a campaign or over the course of an adventure. Absolutely. Um, I think we should also talk about how we could make a GMless version of Dungeon World if we oh, wanted to. Oh, absolutely. And I think we should learn lessons from the GMless games that we're going to talk through here as we make those decisions. So I feel like GMless story-oriented games kind of fall into two camps. And one of those camps is vastly more subscribed to than the other, I think. Um, there are a ton of GMless story-oriented games where basically a particular starting situation is prescribed and then uh, basic character choices are prescribed as well. Um, you have a certain amount of flexibility with what elements of which characters you pick, but then overall you end up sort of forming a starting situation and then playing with characters that you've formed out of that starting situation, and then you go from there. And what's nice about that sort of approach is that it lets the book be the GM. And it, it learns some lessons from, for instance, like a choose-your-own-adventure book where it gives you enough to go on that you can make interesting choices and it becomes more about what you and your friends are doing together and not about someone feverishly trying to pick NPC names, for instance. So random generation is the jam. Like, uh, it can like, be, what, yeah. It's not what's the down only, this hallway, you yeah. can roll for it and that sort of the, stuff. There are some games that do that and then there are other games that have sort of a timeline of events or a particular map that you follow. Um, I believe uh, it's called Fall of Magic is one example where the players play as companions to the witch who's going to br who's going to bring magic back to the world and the game is played it uh, it is a very beautifully done game i don't really understand how it works to be honest oh but i've my, seen this my general impression is that you're following a map that that you reveal little by little as the game advances have you seen uh, this game? I've heard it played. I've not seen it played. So um, this this game is one of those games that relies on a physical artifact, um, similarly to Invisible Sun, where it doesn't really make sense out apart from this artifact, um, which I would almost consider it as a board game. But basically, you have this really ornate and massive scroll. And on the scroll is a lot of locations and stuff like that. And it's very, very long. And as you're going, you're slowly unraveling the scroll as your group is traveling uh, eastward, I believe. And so, like, you don't necessarily know what's ahead, similar, like, where the GM might know, but you, as the players, might not. But everyone at the table together is finding out as you're unrolling this scroll for the first time and following different paths and stuff. And I think there's a companion book that tells you, like, based on what you're seeing on the scroll, like, what sorts of adventures are coming along. But yeah, it's it's very, very cool. Um, there, I'll, I'll link this one in the description, because you kind of have to see what I'm talking about to, to get it. For sure. Um, and so really, what I like about games like this is that it lets you focus on the characters and lets you focus on your character specifically. And that's that's cool. Like, that's something that you don't always get a chance to do in a GM-less game. Uh, so with that in mind, I also want to switch gears, though, and talk quickly about this other breed of GM-less game, which doesn't have this prescribed setting and prescribed fiction that you're kind of walking through. And... Initially, like I think there's an instinct that this is a harder kind of game to play because if everyone is just sort of agreeing about what the fiction looks like and there's nothing that guides you through it, then it has the potential to go wildly off course and to totally lose sight 
of your goals or your your actions along the way. But there's one game in particular that I think handles this in incredibly well, and it's a game called Follow. Um, Eamon, have you heard of Follow? Um, I don't think so. Cool. Well, let me walk you through some of the core ideas here. So Follow is a quest-oriented game. Uh, and I'm just going to read quickly the before you play, the first paragraph of Before You Play. Follow requires no preparation and no game master to run it. You can play a whole quest in a single session, and there's enough variety that you can play again and again and have a new experience every time. You'll need three to five players, two to three hours, etc., etc. Um, various simple equipment. And then you begin. And the basic thing that Follow does as its key component is rather than making it about whether or not you succeed, it's about how your group, as a group, gets through it together or not. Um, in fact, there's one really great line in here. Follow isn't about us coming up with the best plan or a clever solution. It's about seeing what these characters do for better or worse. We may even intentionally make bad choices because they seem like decisions our characters would make. And this is something that I think Dungeon World encourages us to do, right? If we lean into a bad choice in character, that's great roleplay a lot of the time. And we talked a little bit about this last week, about using bad bad decisions as part of sort of a player skill, something that you're doing well as a player. Um, but basically, the game is played. You pick a quest together. Everyone talks about what that quest actually is, and it provides a set of templates for quests where it asks a handful of questions about what it looks like. So, for instance, a quest might be the cure, where you have to cure a terrible disease. But it might also be a championship where you're playing as a sports team and you need to win or lose the championship. And then play proceeds in rounds. You basically get three acts along the quest. And you don't know how you're going to end up succeeding until you get to the third act. And along the way, there are moments where players have the opportunity to describe how they feel about how this went, whether or not they think it, it went well or not. They put a set of red or white stones into a secret bag, and then a stone is drawn. And then depending on whether you get a red stone or a white stone, different results can happen. And a lot of those results have to do explicitly with characters choosing to leave the group, player characters choosing to leave. And that's awesome, because it turns this game, that's, it's, it makes the game not about, you know, how many orcs can you kill, how many spaceships can you, can you fly, etc. Instead, it's about, well, why does my character choose to leave? Why does it make sense that they are no longer interested in being a part of this group? And that sort of focus is, I think, has the potential to be a way more interesting framing than what we typically see in Dungeon World, where it's almost a given, a default, that the group will stay together until they're separated by death or worse. Um, and I think that there's some lessons to, to learn there as we look to turning Dungeon World into a GM-less game. Uh, Eamon, your thoughts? Um, I actually have heard of this game before. It's from Lame Mage Productions, which is also the creator of Microscope, that game I mentioned before. And they kind of, uh, that's sort of their, their niche is these GMless games. They have another one called Kingdom, where I think it's a, a similar sort of uh, setting building game where you, you watch the rise and fall of like a single empire and, and kind of do that together. Um, but I, I actually have heard of uh, Follow before specifically. I know that there's one of the templates that's uh, Slay the Dragon, where it's a like all the group together is just trying to defeat some creature. And an example of how those templates can be mapped onto different fictional situations is I heard of a group that used the Slay the Dragon template, but all the players were mice and what they were trying to kill was a cat. Um, so they were kind of, that was the sort of fiction that they were 
going for using the narrative construction of a group trying to take down a powerful creature. But I do like the idea that these GMless games give us certain narrative freedoms that wouldn't be convenient or productive in the games that we typically play, especially what you're talking about of doing things counter to the group or um, leaving the group even or wildly switching scenes and and, and, um, having the narrative go all over the place in space and time. Those are things that are complicated in our traditional narrative structures and put stress sometimes on on the GM and aren't necessarily supported by the rules and can make the spotlight hard to manage, whereas these games a lot of times have robust support for those sorts of things. Um, and also it's expected, which makes it easier to do kind of at the table. And I'm really interested in when we talk about, um, giving that sort of power to dungeon world, like what changes we should make. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that now? I think, I think it's time. So I think first thing is as a table. Now we have to be mindful of the list of GM moves and, I think actually the fact that Dungeon World provides that is a huge boon for us if we want to create a GMless game out of it. Because at a certain point as a group, we can almost always pick which move follows from the fiction that we're in right now, right? Yeah. And I think that's that's the starting point we have to have is we describe what our characters do and then we all look at the list together and we say, "Well, what would happen now? Would we see a sign of an approaching threat? All right, what does that threat look like, etc." Or, you know, is there a golden opportunity that could be presented to us with or without a cost? I do think, though, that with that, we have the potential for a group to sort of lose sight of the full range of options. Because, obviously, you know, there's the obvious, a monster comes. And that's sort of the default way that we heighten our tension in these games. Um, Now, Dungeon World also has the advantage of being a game where the GM can make a move whenever there's sort of a blank space to occupy or whenever there's a a six minus or whenever the players present a golden opportunity to make a move. So as a group now, we just need to make sure that when we all notice that we're sitting there waiting for something to happen, it's time for us to figure out what happens. Uh, I think the die of fate could be leveraged more heavily in a game like this, where whenever it's not clear who has the narrative control to answer a given question, like maybe the goblin lunges at, um, you know, the goblin pulls at its knife and looks wildly around, and we we don't know who it's going to go for. Like there's not someone who's an obviously a better target than another. Um, we might simply just throw that to the dice and 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 randomly determine something like that um, in in a way where in a normal game the GM would be the one to make that call. Um, or if it's unclear whether something is going to go positively or negatively for a character, we can simply roll a d6 and a higher roll favors the character, a lower roll um, disfavors them and, and simply just arbitrate it that way. Um, and you might even have um, like the player to the left is the one who gets to decide that that player's fate in a given moment or mm-hmm. to make the the move from the GM list. Um, one thing that I um, I really enjoy that I have done in the past is sort of um, a foot in both camps where it is a, G- a game with a GM, but um, it's like a rotating GM somehow. Uh, I've played Dungeon World, for example, in a way where everyone had a character, um, but at any given time, one of those characters wouldn't be present because someone would be GMing. And we had that as sort of like an X-Men Days of Future Past type thing where the world was randomly shifting between one timeline and the other. And when it was in a certain timeline, X characters were present because they lived there. And when it was in another timeline, X other characters were present because they lived there and the other character would be GMing. Um, so that type of thing is fun. You could um, I have another sort of custom procedure to do that with Dungeon World where it's like a... Um, 
uh, a game show where uh, a different person is the host of the game show each week. And when it's their turn to be the host, their, um, their character isn't playing and they get to determine from a cast uh, who's on this episode where um, everyone makes two characters basically. And then the person who's the host that week gets to choose who's playing what. And then everyone goes into the little adventure. Uh, another version of that is where one person's the guild master and the guild master is like the GM for that week and the guild master rotates. And then it's just a similar construction uh, except with a different narrative tone without the, the sort of uh game game show vibe it uh in a more hard, just hardline fantasy vibe where the guild master determines like who's going on this mission so again it allows easy narrative swapping of who's the in the jam chair and for some groups like that kind of defeats the purpose because they're looking for that the role of the gm to be abdicated since they they don't they don't want one person to have that control but it, if you're looking for something to just mix it up without going way off the beaten path like that might be something to try for sure I think a rotating GM like what you've just described is also good as a way to, you know, to switch roles and shake things up. Um, that said, the, one of the nice things about a truly GM-less game is that if one player is less confident than everybody else in being the GM, there's never any pressure to become the GM in that sort of thing. Because you can just sort of contribute what you are comfortable contributing when it comes up. And then apart from that, you are free and clear. Um now, one thing that I want to just, just jump back to quickly is in the context of a GM-less game, you you floated a couple of ideas for who gets to decide fate, and that includes like a die of fate roll or having the player to the left decide, etc. One thing I want to make sure, though, that, that we, as, as, th- as we're thinking about this, that we don't lose sight of, is the set of GM principles that we should be following, too. Even in, in a GM-less game, the game should be played as though these principles are at the forefront. And some of these principles, I think in particular, be a fan of the characters is super important. Make a move that follows is also super important. And I can definitely think of a situation where if a GM is being a fan of the characters, they won't, they will make a consistent range or array of moves that are positive for the player where a die of fate might not do that because, you know, sometimes it comes up high, sometimes it comes up low. So... How would you how how do how should we look at balancing that this this idea that sometimes we're going to roll the die of fate and we're going to think you know what that can't quite be right but that's what the die says so I guess we have to stick with it. Um, one way is to have uh, on paper or recorded somehow our goals for the game, um, our narrative goals for the game, where we want to show um, X Y Z. I could imagine a game that was going for like a horror vibe. Um, to show the desperation of scarcity, right? And so if something comes up in the dice where it's kind of pulling us away from that goal, we as players can say, no, how about this happens? Because this would be more satisfying based on our goal. You know, being in, instead of him opening that chest and it being full of food, him opening that chest and it having one biscuit and, and the characters having to have the tense decision of how that's going to be split between way too many mouths. Like um, we could sort of impose that on ourselves as players because we know based on our goals that that's a better narrative choice. And that's the type of, thinking that I think a lot of these GMless games are trying to get you to do, um, where sort of the story is king and get making a good memorable story together is the whole point. Um, which I, again, yeah, can be really satisfying. Totally. And it requires, I think everyone at the table to develop a pretty thick skin and a lot of maturity around letting their characters be in a hard place. Um, actually the quiet year has a line in the instructions that says, be clinical, don't get attached to the individual characters that you come up with. You know, even though you're going to name people and have them do things and be excited for their successes, you should be willing to let them lose. I think that applies very strongly to our player characters here. 
because now everyone has to be a fan of the characters and as we are constantly reminding ourselves on the on the discord being a fan of the characters doesn't mean giving them their way all the time in fact it means the opposite it means seeing how they react when they're challenged so now everyone is responsible for challenging everybody else which is pretty exciting I think it is Apocalypse World that has, as one of its uh, GM principles, see the world through a bullseye, which basically means that there's a target on everything. Yeah. Nothing is, like, untouchable. Think there's dangerously. No armor. Think dangerously yeah. is the equivalent for and us in Dungeon World land. Yeah, that, that basically means, like, as the GM, um, know that this story is about the PCs, not about your fan fiction so if something that you sort of narratively built gets torn down that's for the sake of the story for sure so i think maybe that's the real thing is when we're running at the game gm list we're all equally responsible to kill our darlings <laughs> and we'll end up happier for it and with that i think that's going to do it for meta talk shall we switch gears real quick and get our minds let's... eyes open for picture this let's do it all right picture this is secretly a super experimental gmless game that we've been playing for the past dozen weeks honestly or so. it kind of is uh so this week our picture of this is a magic item that is well suited for your game so check it out this week is the prestige press ah, let me try this one again <laughs> the prestidigitation the prestidigitation cap the prestidigitation cap is a magical item it resembles a hat Perhaps a top hat or a bowler hat. When you put a small item into the hat, it is duplicated. Describe the ways in which the duplicate is a cheap imitation of the original. And that's the thing. It is a magic item. That is the move that you are able to do. Or rather, that is the move that triggers when you use it. <laughs> so instant counterfeit coins. Yep. Um, shoddy, shoddy duplicates of weapons. Um, or like at least small daggers and that sort of stuff. Um, jewelry to pawn off, that sort of thing. Yeah. It sounds like something that a, uh, a thief in the same party as a wizard might wear. <laughs> For sure. Um, it's actually funny that you say that because this comes from, uh, the game that I played earlier today. This is a magic item that a, that an NPC revealed. And the way that he revealed it was putting a knife into it, taking a duplicate knife out and stabbing himself with it, only for the knife to crumple away into, you know, into like aluminum foil like balls. Um, it, it's, a, it's a fun item. I think that you're absolutely right that one of the key ways it would be utilized is a thief uh, counterfeiting things or uh, someone with sort of roguish qualities using it to create an infinite supply of money, at least until they get noticed. But I think that's the other angle on it is that the the player is responsible for describing the way in which the duplicate is distinguishable from the original, which is a good way to give the player a little bit of narrative control. And also, it makes it clear to the player that they are not getting something for free out of this. They're getting something that can be dangerous, especially because it's up to the player to to make sure that there's a, a limit or a, a weakness to it. I like I like that, especially in the context of Dungeon World, where it's sort of choose your own fate, where you get to yeah. decide like what the flaws are and have mm -hmm. uh, have that sort of control, which is sort of the way that Dungeon World self regulates a lot of the time. Yeah, and at the same time, if I were to take this item and you know I, I put a ruby into it and I pull out a ruby, and the only difference is that there's a tiny little imperfection in the middle of it. Well, then 
what is, what is the implication now if my player has an unlimited supply of gemstones? What treasure-sniffing beast is going to be intrigued by it, only to be repulsed by the pure, flawless originals and deeply interested in these uh, in these recreations? You know, the, the harder the player moves in their own favor, the harder the moves against them can get. And this is true. What... Um... What situation can you see this the use of this item going catastrophically wrong? Ooh. Well, one thing right off the bat, of course, is the counterfeit coin option. Yes, I pay for it using counterfeit gold, and then I'm 30 feet away when the when the shopkeep realizes that the gold does not bend or deform the way it should, and suddenly the guards are after me. That's a fairly mundane example, but it has sort of an immediate consequence or a slightly delayed but still uh, still directly connected consequence. Um, another version of it is duplicating something uh, without necessarily meaning to or ending up with something that you or ending up with the duplicate that you end up mistaking for the original um, <laughs> in particular a, a player who's sufficiently motivated to make uh, to to ask for particular hard moves might give that as an opportunity to the GM as a hard move yeah, I grab the knife from from my from my belt, not really thinking about which one I'm actually grabbing. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Fictional flag waving in the air. <laughs> I like the idea that the wizard um, present, or like the wizard, or simply a wizard, an NPC presents this to the group and says, "When a small item is put into this cap, it is duplicated, but it will be an inferior copy." And the halfling or the dwarf picking it up, and like, let me see that. And they just put the hat on. And then like a simulacrum of them yes. like, appears. And they're like, I'm not a small item. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anything that could fit inside the hat can be duplicated. I suppose that applies to living things too. You put a fairy <laughs> in that hat and then the two fairies flit around and then you get seven wishes. Wait, that's not right. Oh, no. Fourteen wishes. Fairies, wait. Except half of them will curse you and now you don't know yeah. which is which. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thinking about it, it's 14 hearts. Um, because Zelda, Zelda rules. Seven oh, hearts per fairy. Um, wonderful. Well, that's going to be picture this, I think. Now, Eamon, as we wind down today, I just want to remind everybody out there that we have a contest going on right now. Right now, we're in the middle of Play to Find Out's official character contest, where we're recreating characters from fiction and fantasy using the Dungeon World tool set. And a brief rundown of the rules. Use however many levels you need and however many advanced moves you require in order to get your character right. Feel free to fill in the blanks with things outside of the prescribed options and get creative with it. We're really looking forward to seeing great characters that are sent to our show email address as PDFs. Character sheets as PDFs. And that show email address is play to find out at protonmail.com. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast and you want to keep us help us keep going, we'd love to hear your feedback over on iTunes, which is, for better or for worse, the important review portal. So check us out on iTunes, leave a review, and let us know how we're doing and how much fun you're having listening to us. Until next time, what tavern will, be in, what tavern will be, we be in when we return? Who knows? Who knows? Hopefully it will be a warm one because I am starting to shiver. <laughs> what are you talking about? This one was in the desert. Yeah, but it's nighttime in the desert. Nighttime's cold in desert. Uh, That's how deserts work. It is. We need a better fictional desert. Well, next time we play a, a GM-less game, I'll, I'll create a nation where it's hot exclusively in the nighttime. That sounds worse. <laughs> but we'll find out about more about that next time on Play to Find Out. Mm-hmm.